Look, y'all can say amen to that. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to meet um, Bob, but he is, he's a hero, and he's a part of our church, and things, you'll, you'll be hearing stories from the congregation all throughout this series, so please tune in, lean in. Good morning, though, by the way. I didn't even say hi. It's good to see you. You look well. You invited some friends. We got a full house. This is nice. Uh, my name is Nick, one of the pastors. I want to welcome you to worship. Show of hands, all right? I need you to show me your hands. How many of you have had the chance to see your favorite band, or at least one of your favorite bands, live and in concert? Raise your hand. Okay, now keep your hands up. Now I want you to shout out what band it was. No judging. Not going to judgment. What were, some of the, what were some of these bands? Come on, shout them out. Pink Floyd. All right. Who else? Over here. What? Who? Balsam Range. Uh, three Dog Night. I know Three Dog Night. Okay. Gloria Estefan. All right. Shaking my boot. Let's do that in church right here. You too. Ooh, wow. Yeah. You too. What was that like? I mean, think about think about the concert. Think about that night. What was that like? Phenomenal, right? My wife and I about a year ago. We're given the opportunity by some friends of ours to see probably our favorite band right now live and in concert. I don't know if you've heard of them. Any Mumford & Sons fans in the house? Anybody know? Okay. My people. Yeah. Yeah, we had a chance to see them up in Charlotte last year, and it was on my bucket list. And I'll be honest, most of the time, you know, things don't live up to my expectations. I'm that guy, you know, who has like super high expectations. And so then you go and you do, you're like, yeah, it's, it's okay. All right, right. That was amazing. Like, phenomenal. And the crazy thing is, you probably feel the same way. You've listened to these songs how many times? Hundreds, right? Driving around with your windows up, like jamming out, right? I see you. I've seen you do it. But yet when you go to a concert, it's like hearing them all over again, right? For the first time, because you're in the midst of like thousands of people all singing the same song and it's phenomenal and it's an amazing experience. And, and typically at these concerts, there's always like, you know, the, the band has that song, right? That, that everybody really loves. They might have several, but, but there's always that moment where they stop playing, they back away from the microphone and they let the crowd sing it back. What was that like? Ugh, right? The goosebumps. I mean, it's, it's a phenomenal experience. There's like this life, there's this energy that we get when we're in the midst of people who are all like centered around the same passion, right? Who are, who are pursuing the same purpose. I mean, the same thing happens like at a big football game. How many of you are at like Clem, the Clemson National Championship? Anybody? Yeah. What was that like? Man, I don't really care about Clemson, but whatever. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure, that, was, that, was a, that had to be a phenomenal experience. I mean, to be in the midst of thousands of people, right, who all want that same thing to happen. And then when it actually does happen, it's like, oh, are you freaking out, going crazy? It's, it, there's this life, there's this energy that we experience when we're in the midst of people who are all, who are all committed to the same purpose, who, who, who are gathered around the same passion. Now, in, in our One Life class, which is our six-week small group launch. If you're not in a small group, that's what you need to come to to get you into a group. We have several of them kicking off here in a couple weeks. You can get information in your adult guide, shameless plug, ba-bam, right? But in that class, we talk about the difference between a crowd and a community. A crowd is a bunch of people who just happen to be in the same place at the same time. That's what a crowd is. 
Community is a bit different. Community is a group of people who aren't just in the same place, but they've gathered around the same thing, the same purpose, the same passion. You don't experience that kind of life, that kind of energy from just being in a crowd. And when was the last time you walked out of the DMV going, whoa, <laughs> right? That was amazing. No, no, it doesn't happen. I mean, that's, that's a crowd. Maybe the only thing you have in common with the people there is you don't want to be there, right? That's not community. Community's different. You're not just there, but you're like there. Does that make sense? Here's why I bring this up. The church is not called to be a crowd. The church is not called to be a bunch of people who just happen to show up once a week and sit under the same roof for an hour and some change. It's not the church. The church is called to be community. A group of people who aren't just gathered around any purpose. They're gathered around the greatest purpose. The gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. And Pastor Drew already shared with you, and we were kicking off a brand new series, calling it Core. I believe this is a really important series for us, particularly in the life of sort of where we're at right now. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but we're growing. Have you noticed that? Which on the one hand is really great and it's exciting, but at the same time, it's kind of scary. Sometimes the bigger you get, the easier it is to forget. To forget who you are. To forget what you're about. To forget the calling that God has placed on all of us as a community. And so for the next eight weeks, we're going to be unpacking what the leadership of the church really feels like God has shared with us, the, the core values that have been here all along, and some of them maybe haven't. We're going to spend the next eight weeks really discussing and sharing these things just to make sure that we're all singing the same song, if that makes sense, that we're all on the same page. And these, these values not only allow us to really clarify who we are and what we're about, but they also offer some accountability, right? To make sure that we're being true and faithful to who God has called us to be. At the same time, I hope you hear me when I say this. You're not a part of a community by association. You're not a part of a community because you happen to just show up. You're a part of a community through participation, by being involved and I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of a movement of God. Is that what you want? I don't want to just be another big church. The world's got plenty of those. I want to be a part of a movement of God. You know what a movement is, what differentiates a movement from a big church? A movement is when everybody involved participates. When everybody involved owns it. Are you with me? So these core values can't just be central to the staff or to a select group of people. These core values must be central to all of us. And so I'm hoping that it's also a bit of a challenge for everybody sitting here in this room. Are you with me? Well, this morning we got a biggie. It's a big one. We wrestled with this. Should, should there be an order to these core values? We didn't really know. We came up, we did figure out that we felt like there was one core value that really came, became before all of them. And Pastor Jeff is sharing that message right now over there. And you all got stuck with me. But he'll be back over here next week. So don't go and listen to the message online. I'm over there, or it'll be really redundant next week, okay? But the first core value we feel like was sort of the ultimate was Jesus first, Jesus always. And Pastor Jeff's going to share more about that next week. But the one I feel like is right after that is on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as in heaven. Now, this should sound somewhat familiar to you because you just said it not too long ago, right? It comes to us from the Lord's Prayer where Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Say it with me. On earth as it is in heaven. 
Now to understand, really understand this value and how I, I think it ought to flesh itself out in our lives, we're gonna be hanging out in that passage that we just had read to us a few moments ago. But I wanna encourage you, if you have your Bibles, open them up. Right? Or if you didn't bring them, maybe bring them next week. If you didn't, there's some in front of you. Luke chapter 17, we're gonna be hanging out there. Go ahead and turn your Bibles. I love the sound of pages turning on a Sunday morning. Luke chapter 17. It's to the right. Hey, Luke 17. So Jesus is approached by these Pharisees, right? And the Pharisees ask him a question. They ask him, Jesus, when is the, when is the kingdom of God going to come? Which should tell us a couple things. One is the kingdom of God is something they already know about. Or this is something that, that, that they're expecting, something that they're looking for, something that they're waiting for. And the kingdom of God wasn't an idea Jesus made up. Right? It existed before Jesus came around and he talked about it. Now, it's important to understand, the kingdom of God was like the central message of all of Jesus' teachings. I mean, this was the thing Jesus taught about. He taught about the kingdom of God. In fact, the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, and that's how it shows up in the gospel of Matthew, shows up 85 times in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 85 times. It's a lot. Wouldn't you agree? And, and, and in fact, many of, if not all, of the parables Jesus tells, his, his stories, you know how they begin? The kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. This was what Jesus talked about. It was the core of his gospel message. Now, what makes it a little tricky for you and I is that when we hear kingdom of God, we tend to think of a place. Right, like we hear kingdom, we think well, we think United Kingdom, we think Magic Kingdom. Ah, such the scariest place on earth for young young parents, right? We think of a place, a location. So many of us, we hear Kingdom of God. What do we think about? Heaven, right? The place where God is now and where we might go after we die. That's what we tend to think about. This is not what Jesus and the Pharisees had in mind when they talked about the kingdom of God. Now to get into this, we're going to have to like really get into it. Think you can handle it. Roll up your sleeves. We have to get into the word. Can you buckle up, buttercup? Yeah? First, the language that Jesus used, right? And the original language of the New Testament is, is ancient Greek. The word for kingdom is this Greek word basileia. You want to try it out? Give it a shot. Basileia, right? This word often referred to sort of the, the, the power, the ruling power that a monarch had, that a ruler had. So it was referring more to their, their authority, more to the power that they had to rule and not necessarily a place. And so I, th I think a more helpful translation would be the ruler, the reign of God. It's referring more to authority and less to locality. That's so important for us to understand. At the same time, in, in, in the first century, during the time of Jesus, this phrase was a buzzword. It had really grown in popularity around the time of Jesus because it tapped in to all of these like fundamental cultural expectations and hopes that the people of Israel had about very specific things they believed their God was going to do. Things that they believed their God was going to do in real life history, right? Like ways in which God was going to show up, ways in which God was going to move. 
They lived with this sort of expectation. And this phrase, kingdom of God, tapped into all of that. I mean, if you were to go back and you read through the Hebrew scriptures, or what we often refer to as the Old Testament, you will not find the phrase kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. It's not in there. But what you will find often is God referred to as king, particularly in the book of Psalms. Right? There's a whole group of Psalms called the enthronement Psalms, and, and these Psalms lift God up as king. For instance, here's, here's one, Psalm 47, verse 2. For the Lord most high is awesome. Y'all say amen to that. The great king over all the earth. If you jump down to verse 6, sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. Y'all see why Jack's got a job? Yeah? He does a good job too, right? Sing praises to our king. Verse 7, for God is what? The king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. So you get the imagery here, right? God is king. Now, even though the Psalms recognize that, celebrate that, the Psalms are also honest about the fact that there are other authorities, there are other rulers, there are other powers at work in the world. And not all of them stand on God's side, that many of them actually oppose God. And these powers also oppress people, people that God Loves. And they often refer to these powers as the nations, is what it often refers to them as. So, so Psalm, Psalm 2, verse 1, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? Verse 2, the kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed. So this, you got to understand, this is the worldview that the scriptures offer us, is that while, yes, God is king, right? God is ultimately king, there are other rulers and powers and authorities that exist that are in opposition to God. And, and they sometimes come to us in the form of other rulers and, and governments, but at the same time, behind all of that, we know that there's a real enemy. There's an enemy that opposes God and oppresses God's people. Israel knew all about this firsthand. I mean, in the, 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 the nation, the people, they lived in this really valuable piece of land in the ancient Near East. Like, if you're playing Monopoly, ancient Near East style, any Monopoly fans? Come on now. Yeah. If you're playing Monopoly, like, where Israel is at, it'd be like Park Place or Boardwalk. I mean, it's valuable. It was right in the middle of all these other great empires. Right in the middle of them. Right? And so Israel, throughout its history, was used to getting kicked around. They were used to getting stepped on. They were used to getting pushed to the side. They were used to getting conquered. So by the time of Jesus, for all sorts of reasons, some of them their their own fault, Israel had a hard time staying faithful to the covenant God established with them. They didn't keep up their end of the bargain. But for other reasons as well, the cruelty of these other nations, and by the time of Jesus, Israel had ruled and conquered by empire after empire. They'd been carried off as refugees. They've been enslaved. They knew oppression. They knew suffering. They're used to having somebody's boot on their neck. Sort of where they live, that was the sphere of this whole thing. But in the midst of all of that, there are these people called the prophets. Folks like Isaiah, folks like Daniel. And they spoke into the situation. They said, you know what? Listen, it's not always going to be like this. It's not. One day, God's going to act. 
One day, God's gonna do something about all the suffering, about all the injustice. God is going to do something about it. One day, God is gonna be fully and totally king. And all this would have happened through whom this person that became known as the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed, who would usher in the reign and the rule of God. And so you find these descriptions all throughout the prophets of what this reign and rule will look like, what it would finally be like if God were king and if things were the way that God wants them to be. Can I read some of them to you? Because they're beautiful. you mind? Several of them from, from the book of Isaiah. Now keep in mind, these are being given to people who, some of them are living in exile. They're hundreds of miles away from their own home. They're in slavery. They're in bondage, right? And this is the word they get from these prophets. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Guess where, the, guess where the term gospel comes from? Here. It's good news. That's what it literally means. Good news. Who proclaim peace. Who bring good tidings. Who proclaim salvation. Who say to Zion, your God reigns. Refugees. Bondage. Your God reigns. Verse 10, the Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Then in Isaiah chapter two, I love this description of what, what the reign and rule of God will look like when, it, when it's actually happening fully and finally on our world. Verse four of Isaiah chapter two, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. I love this part. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears and the pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. I long for that. When we stop building bombs, when we start using our God-given ingenuity and ability to actually make the world a beautiful place, that's the reign and rule of God. That's the kingdom of God. One more. Can you handle one more? I love this one. Isaiah 25, verse 4, talking about the priorities of this kingdom. He says, you have been a refuge for the who? The poor. For the down and out, the ones who don't have it all together. You've been a refuge for the poor. A refuge for the needy and their distress. A shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. Verse 6, I love this. When it's all finally set up, this is the imagery we get. This is what it looks like. It's a big feast. Mmm. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Y'all say all. All peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Y'all say amen to that. Whew. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from what? All the earth, the Lord has spoken. When you hear kingdom of God, this is what should come to mind. This is what Jesus meant. It was shorthand for the way the world would be if God was fully and finally king. If God was ruling and reigning. How do you like the sound of that? I like the sound of that. I mean, Jesus says it pretty succinctly in the Lord's Prayer. I can learn a little, few lessons on succinctness. Jesus is pretty good at it. He said this in the Lord's Prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done. That's a synonym right there. 
No, synonym is? How many remember School of Rock? Synonym, synonym. Words that mean the same thing, right? It's two ways of saying the exact same thing. The kingdom of God is not a place. You know what it is? It's a reality. The kingdom of God is wherever things are the way God wants them to be. That's gospel. That's good news. I mean, I like the sound of that, though. Like the sound of that? I would argue that this is probably not what most people think about, though. When they hear phrases, ideas like kingdom of God or gospel. We already admitted this once. What do most people think of when they hear the term kingdom of God? Heaven, right? They think about somewhere else, sometime else, that place where we might go to after we die. And so for most people, gospel, things like gospel, are primarily about what happens after we die, right? It's about life after death. And I think this is so important for, for us to get our heads around because what we believe the gospel to be ultimately determines how we respond to the gospel. And so for many people, if, if kingdom of God is gospel, is, is all about life after death and that place that we go some other time, you know what salvation is then? It's escape. It's evacuation. I mean, it's not about here. It's about there. It's not about now. It's about later. And so what this is happening is it becomes about escape. The point is, is to get somewhere else. The point is to not be here. It's to run. It's to flee which I would think helps to explain why a good majority of the church is so distanced and disengaged and isolated from the broken things in the world. In fact, there are some people who identify themselves as Christians by how much distance they can keep from themselves and the bad stuff. What's the gospel concerned about? Who's the good news for? What is the kingdom of God? It's things the way God wants them to be. So people buy into this idea, this gospel of escape. And, and so they basically, I mean, why, if, if that's what you think it is, if, if the gospel is just about life after death, then why bother trying to change anything right now? God's just going to blow all this up anyway, right? I'll come down to the altar. I'll say my prayer. I'll make sure my personal security, eternal security is taken care of. And then I'm just going to sit back and wait. I might buy a few T-shirts and some bumper stickers, but I might buy about it. Can I tell you something? That is not the gospel Jesus came proclaiming. That is not the gospel Jesus came to proclaim. I mean, for instance, in the gospels, when he first goes public, you know what Jesus' message is? Repent, change your mind, for the kingdom of God is what? Draw near. It's at hand. If the kingdom of God is just somewhere else for another time, how can that sort of kingdom be drawing near? Let's go back to the Lord's Prayer. We've referenced it now three times. What's Jesus' prayer? What's his desire? To suck us up to heaven? to crash heaven into earth. To crash heaven into earth. And when Jesus speaks about the future day, when, when, when God is fully king and fully in charge, when, when things are set right, you know what he refers, refers to that as? The renewal of all things. I like the sound of that. Not the destruction of all things. The renewal of all things. Colossians chapter one. I'm gonna keep going. Y'all hang in there, all right? This is the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E. Maybe read it. Colossians chapter one. Pastor Jeff's gonna share, share with us a word from there. Beautiful passage of scripture next week. But in that, the author Paul refers to what God is doing through Jesus Christ. You know what he calls it? The reconciliation of all things. To reconcile means to bring back together. It means to put pieces back together. 
So what God is up to in Jesus Christ is setting things right. Setting things right. Tell me, how does the Bible end? You should look at it sometime. The end of Revelation. It doesn't end with us getting sucked up to heaven. You know what it ends with? Heaven coming to earth. And once again, the world being the kind of place God wants it to be. I call that good news. Do you agree? Y'all want to see something like that happen? I know my shirt's tucked in, I got a tie on, but y'all can get rowdy and make some noise, right? Is that, is that something you want to see? I mean, seriously, I mentioned Clemson a few moments ago, and I got you all to make some noise. How many of y'all want to see the world set right? Yeah? I'm glad you're excited. Let's keep looking at the text. Notice what Jesus says next. So the Pharisees ask him, when is the kingdom of God going to come, right? When is this going to happen? So again, they're longing for it. They're expecting it. Jesus' answer is really intriguing. Jesus says this. The coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. I want to unpack that phrase, in your midst. Sometimes that, that phrase gets translated as within you. I think it's pretty misleading. Because what it suggests is that the kingdom of God is just this sort of private, personal, religious experience that you have with you and God, and it's purely spiritual. Just something that happens inside of you, it's nobody else's business. Jesus never talks about the kingdom of God that way. The kingdom of God always shows up out here. The kingdom of God always brings about real, tangible change in the world around you. Does that make sense? It changes things. It confronts things, like racism. It deals with issues of injustice. It doesn't just stay inside of you. It calls it out of you. Are you with me? Right? At the same time, I, I kind of have a hard time with how the NIV actually even translates this. I know I'm, I'm no authority here, but I, I read people who are, and, and they point out the fact that in your midst can be, is a, is a little misleading too, because it, it suggests that sort of the kingdom is there, but it's hidden, it's secret, and all we got to do is find it. Right? This does not actually come out of the language Jesus used. Jesus uses some aggressive language here. And I love the way that New Testament scholar N.T. Wright translates this. He says, the kingdom of God is in your grasp. And I love what he has to say about this verse. It says the phrase is active. It doesn't just tell you where the kingdom is. It tells you that, that you've got to do something about it. It is within your grasp. It is confronting you with a decision, the decision to believe, trust, and follow Jesus. It isn't the sort of thing that's just going to happen so that you can sit back and watch. I love this part. Let it sink in. God's sovereign plan to put the world to rights is waiting for you to sign on. You want to see the world change? What are you doing about it? The kingdom of God isn't just something that happens to us. It's something that happens with us. This is the way God works. I don't get it. I'd rather God just do it all for us. Now God works. God's collaborative. God works with us. God means to change this thing from the inside out. It starts with us. God's sovereign plan to put the world to rights is waiting for you to sign on. I want to be clear real quick. I know what some of you are thinking. The world will not be set right till Jesus Christ returns. Can I say that? I'm going to say that. Make it clear. You can call me crazy because it sounds a little crazy. I'm like, it sounds a little crazy. Here's what I believe. I believe this, that Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ, the one that was crucified, dead and buried, three days he rose from the dead, that Jesus Christ, I believe one day is going to return. He's going to come back. And when he does, Jesus is going to finish what was started on that first Easter Sunday. The invasion of God's new world, not somewhere else, right here. 
in the middle of this one. This world is going to be remade. This world is going to be the way that it should be. Hear me when I say that. All right? That will not happen until Jesus Christ returns. However, this day is often referred to as the day of the Lord. It's how the authors of the New Testament refer to this. They call it the day of the Lord. There's this really interesting passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 that speaks of the day of the Lord and tells us to live our life in light of that, anticipating it, looking towards the day of the Lord. And here's what it says. I love this part. You look towards the day of the Lord, and then guess what? Speed its coming. Hmm. As you look forward to the day of the Lord and you speed its coming. You know what that means? There's some sort of relationship between what we do right now, between the kind of lives that we live, the decisions that we make, the passions and the values that we have, what we give our lives to right now. There's a relationship between that and when that day will come. You want to see the world change. What are you doing about it? This is one of my favorite things about our faith is that it offers us purpose. It offers us meaning. When I was younger, I had a hard time with, the, with, the, with Christianity and with the church. You know why? Look like a bunch of people just waiting to die. I was explaining to me, hey, believe in Jesus, say this prayer. When you die, you're not going to go to hell. What about everything else? I mean, if God really loves this world, then why are these things happening? Why are little kids being kidnapped and forced into sexual slavery? If God loves the world, why is that happening? Where is God? You know, the question I'm actually learning is the right question to ask is where are we? Where are we? God's there. That's what Bob said in his video. God's there. I've seen him. He's there. But I believe the gospel offers us purpose. And here's where I want to spend the rest of our time. I got a few minutes. Let's see if we can do this. The gospel offers us kingdom purpose, kingdom purpose, which I would argue all of us want. Every single person in this room, you know what we long for? One of our deepest needs, deepest desires is purpose. It's meaning. We want a reason to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life, is number one book of all time besides the Bible. Why? What do we want? We want a purpose driven life. We want to feel like our lives matter. In fact, we had our first business leaders luncheon here about two weeks ago. Anybody in the room, were you there? It's a great time together. The room was full of business leaders. People who had great jobs. Leaders in the community. And the speaker challenges with, with a question. The question is, what, what's your purpose? I'm not asking for your job title, your salary. What's your purpose? What's your why? It was interesting. After the, after the, after the lunch, how many people I heard from afterwards who said, you know what, I don't like that question because I don't know how to answer it. I don't know how to answer it. Purpose. We long for purpose, don't we? Now, what I want to do, because I don't have enough time right now, is I want to offer a series of workshops, maybe on Sunday mornings while you're here. You can come do worship one hour and come to the workshop the next hour. But we're going to explore this some more. It's like, how do you really find your kingdom purpose? There's several questions, I think, that are involved, and I was hoping to lead you through all of them this morning. That's not going to happen. And, and the thing is, God kept bringing me back to this one question, because I think this is where it starts. This is the first and most important question. I, th I believe it is. And here's the question. What breaks your heart? What disrupts you? What bothers you? What tears you up? What's that thing when you hear about, when you see it, something inside you screams, that shouldn't happen. What breaks your heart? 
I would argue this is the first and most important question to finding your purpose. And here's why. We tend to start with a different question. We tend to start with what great thing am I supposed to do with my life? Right? What's that thing I'm supposed to do? And really, what this tells me is that we're, lo- we're looking for meaning. We're looking for significance. That's a God-given desire. That's a great thing. But that cannot be the question we lead with, and here's why. Who's, who's the attention still on? When you ask that question, who are you thinking about? You. You want to feel important. You want to matter. It's good. It's great. Don't, don't lead with that. Because as long as we lead with that, our attention's on ourself. And what I found about you and I is we can never get past our insecurities or our insufficiencies when it comes to that. I'm sure plenty of you have had a thought, oh man, this would be a great idea. Somebody should do something like that. Then your next thought is, well, I'm not qualified, so it must be somebody else. You ever had that thought before? But instead, when you start with disruption, when you start with having your heart torn to pieces, when you start with being broken over something in the world that just troubles you and you lose sleep over, when you start with that, you know what it does? It introduces urgency. And it pushes you past all of that. Suddenly your insecurities and insufficiency, they don't matter so much. I got a news, a news flash for you. All the people we admire who are doing amazing things, they don't feel qualified. They never did. You know what they feel? They feel responsible. Somebody's got to do something. It's like if I see my son choking and he's turning blue, I'm not going to excuse myself out of doing something because I don't know proper CPR techniques. What am I going to do? I'm going to do something. I'm going to get involved. And maybe I won't do it right, but I'll go and learn how to do it right and I'll be prepared next time because a kid keeps shoving whole grapes into his mouth. But see, the people that I know that live with the least amount of insecurity over their purpose, you know who they are? People who are knee-deep and face-to-face with real suffering and pain and evil in the world. People like Bob. They know their purpose. It's because their heart's been broken. I think a struggle is we try to find purpose apart from passion. That word passion, if you get into the roots of the word, you know what it means? It means suffering. It was first used to describe the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's where passion comes from. That's why the movie is called The Passion of the Christ. Passion always involves sacrifice. Passion always involves suffering. But we look for purpose apart from passion. We look for purpose in the midst of comfort. It's not there. Philippians chapter 1 says it to us like this. Chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him as well. It's not talking about mindless suffering. It's not talking about natural disasters or difficult things that happen. He goes on to speak about Jesus' work on the cross. This is redemptive suffering. This is the kind of suffering that takes place when we identify something that's broken in the world and we give our lives to making it well. That's what it's talking about. This is so countercultural, isn't it? So countercultural. One of the highest values in our culture is comfort. It's comfort. It's secure. It's, it's like being secure, right? I mean, think, I mean just, just, just take a look at like our, our technological advances, like the ones we get excited about. What do they usually have to do with? Making our life easier, right? Making things a bit more convenient. I mean, you can buy groceries now online and have them shipped to your house. You don't talk to anybody. All right. I remember when the Apple Watch first came out. Remember you know, Apple Watch? Like it syncs up to your phone. Wear it on your wrist. A friend of mine, he's like really into, into gidget, what, gidgets? What are they called? <laughs> Gadgets. <laughs> do you eat a gidget? What do you do? They don't even know what a gidget is. He's like really into that kind of stuff, right? And so he went to an Apple store. 
And he was looking at the Apple watches and they're beautiful. Everything Apple makes is beautiful. I don't even like taking it out of the package. You ever got anything from Apple from the mail? It's like, it's like butter. When you first open butter, I'm on a tangent right now. Anyway, he's at the Apple store. He's looking at an Apple watch and this guy who works there notices him kind of, you know, staring at it. And he walks over and he says, that baby right there, change your life. It's like, oh, really? Tell me more, right? So his friend, this, this, is, this is literally the pitch. This was the pitch. How much time and energy do you think you spend taking your phone out of your pocket to check it? <laughs> Imagine how much of your life you'll get back when all you have to do is look at your wrist, right? It's like, that's really your pitch. I ended up buying one. I don't think it was because of that, but what's funny is, you know what he told me? Guess where that watch spends most of its time? In a drawer. Funny, man, one of the highest values in our culture is comfort. Comfort, comfort, comfort. Work real hard, buy a bunch of stuff, distract yourself from all that other things. Just, that's all you need. Be comfortable. And we're miserable for it. We're miserable for it. We're the ones suffering. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 1, it's been granted to you to suffer for Christ. You know what that word granted means? Gift. It's a gift. Suffering is a gift. I found that to be true. Several months ago, I was in Haiti. Opportunity to go to Haiti with a group of men and we did a scouting trip looking for opportunities to partner with what God is doing in Haiti and some really exciting things are happening there. You're going to be hearing more about it. We're trying to take more scouting trips. Is that something you're interested in? Please let me know. We'd love to get you down there. But I want to tell you right now, Haiti's a hard place to go. It's a difficult place to go. I've never seen poverty like that in my life. Port-au-Prince may be one of the most awful places on planet Earth. Four million people packed to know each other in a city that was built for several hundred thousand. I mean, it's just bodies everywhere, people everywhere, filth. There's some beautiful people in Haiti, beautiful people in Haiti. It's hard. And while we were there, we, we were asked to come and see an orphanage. And there's orphanages everywhere in Haiti because most of the orphans are not orphans because their parents are dead. They're orphans because of poverty. They don't have enough to take care of them, so they drop them off in an orphanage and think they'll be better off. And so as you can imagine, orphanages are overcrowded and underfunded. And this is one of those places, half-finished buildings everywhere. There, were, there was one room where the kids slept, and there was literally 14 kids sleeping on one bed or a dirt floor. None of them had enough. As we were giving a, getting a tour, we, we came into this room, and we stumbled upon this little girl. I have a picture. She was off by herself, asleep, because she was sick. It wasn't anything serious as that we would call serious. It was maybe the flu or a cold, but she wasn't breathing well. Really labored breath. And this tore me up. Do you want to know who I saw when I looked at that girl? I saw my daughter. What hit me was if that was my daughter, she would not be laying on the floor by herself. And I certainly wouldn't be losing sleep because I'm afraid that she's going to die from a common cold. That's reality in Haiti. That's real. And it's not okay. It is not okay. I took a picture because I never wanted to forget. I'm going to tell you right now, as hard as that moment was, you know what it was ultimately? It was a gift. And here's why. Because what I wasn't thinking about that moment, all the junk I think about while I'm here that doesn't really matter. All the stuff that takes up my brain and stuff that consumes me, the stuff that ultimately doesn't matter. I wasn't thinking about it then. This is what suffering does. It's a gift because of what it does is it wakes us up to what actually matters and it rescues us from living a life that doesn't really 
matter. It's a gift. What breaks your heart? That's my question for you this morning. What tears you up? Because the kingdom of God's cross-shaped. It's cross-shaped. Jesus says to us, if you're going to follow me, you're going to be a part of what I'm doing. You're going to take up your cross and you're going to follow me. Which means you're going to find a broken place in the world. And you're going to enter into it and you're going to partner with me in putting the pieces back together. What's this look like for you? I can't answer it for you. But I can point you in some directions. First one I'm going to point you in the direction of is our after school program. And we're a community that values children. We value children in this community. There's some kids who aren't ours. And they don't have the opportunities that a lot of children have. They don't have positive pictures to look at. Guess who gets to be their positive picture? Us. Some of y'all are retired, which means you got the most valuable resource on planet Earth. You know what it is? Time. We need you. Those kids need you. There's informa informational meetings happening today after worship and on September 10th. Write it down. Go. At least listen. Listen. Could you do that? Same time. We're, we're moving into a new partnership with Epworth Children's Home. Y'all probably know Epworth. If you've driven around Columbia, it's a children's home downtown. We've supported it for a long time financially, but they're trying to get more involved with the foster care system. Trying to empower churches to get more involved with the foster care system. Because what they found is there's 4,000 kids registered in the foster care system. Guess how many houses we have? 1,600. Unacceptable. I heard of a church who identified several hundred kids in their local community that needed a home. Pastor got up one day and said this, there's 400 kids in our community without a house. That's not okay. What if we did something about it? Every single one of the kids was taken care of. That's heaven coming to earth. Wouldn't you agree? And what is it? You can't answer it. Pray this prayer. God, break my heart for the things that break your heart. Amen? You pray with me? Jesus, thank you for your good news. Thank you, Lord, for not only saving us from our sin, but saving us into your kingdom. And right now, I just pray you tear us to pieces. Some of us are apathetic, we're distracted, we're way too comfortable, and we're miserable for it. Wake us up, tear us to bits, and then put us back together. We love you, Jesus. Amen.